Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. I have a special edition today. I got to have a conversation with Alan Armstrong at the Young Pipeline Professionals USA Symposium. And it was such fun to be in a room of oil and gas industry millennials talking with my colleague who believes as strongly as I do that our millennial and Gen Z workforces are some of our most valuable and promising people and potential. So Alan needs no introduction, but he's the president and CEO of Williams, and he's had that role since 2011. And Williams is a $43 billion natural gas processing and transport company uh, based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now you'll hear in our conversation that Alan makes several references to someone that many of you are familiar with, Adam and Teens, Ann Cardo. Ann is our Director of Client Strategy and Sustainability, and she gave the talk right before us, which had a really big impact on me, on Alan, and on the audience. I hope you enjoy this conversation we had where the emphasis was on emerging leaders in the pipeline industry. We're here today because the world faces many crises. I don't need to enumerate them for you, but the, the world urgently needs to bring billions of people out of poverty. We have a need to, with great care, accelerate decarbonization to address climate change. And we have a, a superpower invading a neighboring nation, uh, Russia invading Ukraine and upending the geopolitical system as we know it. And here you are sitting here in the midst of all of these tremendous global crises and in every crisis, of course, comes opportunity, and you're poised to take the leadership mantle of not only our industry, but because our industry is so central, it's such the lifeblood of the global economy and global security, you're poised to lead the world into the next chapter. And so it's absolutely thrilling to be here and share our thinking about why you matter so much and why staying in the oil and gas industry is the most relevant, important place you can be to address these very interesting, these very urgent and these very compelling crises. So um, I am so delighted to be on the stage with Alan because um, while uh, Anne showed the millennial graph, millennials are going to dominate population forever. So we pretty much have to um, get onto your coattails because, you know, you're going to be taking care of us when we're old. <laughs> and and then Gen Z, now when we add millennials plus Gen Z, like, you really do dominate dominate population in all its forms, not just within our industry, but with all of our external stakeholders. And within our industry, not every leader established with many, many years of experience and proven track record in the, in the oil and gas industry understand and value the importance 
of these next generations. But Alan does, and I admire uh, Alan's vision for the energy future and uh, for your role in it. And so I get to ask Alan questions, and then you get to ask either of us questions. And, and like and the speaker before me, I invite you to push back or ask difficult questions. And let's have a real conversation, because when you leave here, we want you to be motivated, mobilized, and ready to be a part of building the energy future. Okay, so with that, Alan, no pressure, but can you give us your vision of the energy future and William's role in it? Tell us how this could play out. Sure. Well, I, I will in just a moment, but I want to start with a few things. First of all, Anne, that was really really incredible. I took a lot from that. I thought it was extremely well done. I may answer a lot of your questions today just by saying, well, whatever Ann said, because that was... That's what I do in Adam and Tim. So, and really, it's really great that you've been on the front lines of that opposition, which I think is really valuable. I think it's valuable in any career to have kind of been up close and personal to the challenge. Thank you for that. Tyler, same thing. Thank you very much for taking the leadership to set this up. And I am really excited about getting to talk to this group because it is so important. It has never been more important. When my career started out, we were just focused on staying off the radar screen. So, you know, the pipeline industry was quiet. Nobody knew what we did. Nobody cared what we did. And it was just, we were just engineers doing technical stuff and life was super simple in that regard. Your life is going to, in the energy sector, is going to be totally different than that because you're not off the radar screen. You're going to be front and center of some of the most important challenges, period, that we have in the world, which is, as, as, Anne, as Anne laid out and Tisha has, you know, lays out in her book, these challenges are essential to life as we know it today, and being able to navigate the challenges ahead of us and providing an incredible amount of, and an increasing amount of energy to the world for it to continue to prosper and for people to have the same kind of blessings and opportunities that you all have, a lot of you anyway, I won't speak for all of you because I don't know all of you, but for many of you have uh, taken for granted a lot of the opportunities that you have. The rest of the world deserves that and it takes a lot of energy to bring that forward. And so I really truly believe that you are at the crossroads of two of the most important things that we have as a civilization to face more abundant, low-cost energy on one hand and reducing the emissions and, in, and taking on the climate change problem in a real and practical level. That is, that is some massive challenges and you ought to be really excited because if you're, you know, I would just tell you that, that, that in, any kind of challenge means uh, that you're going to have purpose in your life, you're going to get to take on and make a big difference in the world. And I can't think of a better place, honestly, I cannot think of a better place to be positioned right now than coming into the energy space early in your career. Oh, so I'll start. Yeah, I, I owe you an answer, don't I? Well, yeah, we'll, yeah. Get, we'll get that going. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the, the future, I would just say it's very much, you know, encapsulated in those two challenges. The, the ability to reform how people think about energy not through education, but through really just through our actions um, and us continuing to come forward with solutions. Because, you know, the, there's so many things in my life. And, I've, you know, I've been around long enough. I've seen this happen. Things go in a direction for a while and then 
and things seem like, well, this this is never going to work. This is crazy. And then it bumps into a sideboard. And then it kind of comes back to the middle, comes back to the pendulum, it bumps into a sideboard over here. And so that that's how things will go. And, you know, the situation that we saw in, in Europe this last uh, summer, or sorry, this last winter and the Ukrainian crisis are one of those sideboards. Um, it isn't going to change. It is not going to change the fact that we have a growing demand for energy and that we've got to take on climate change. Those two things are not going to change. But we have hit kind of one of those reality bumpers where people go, whoa, 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 that, that, that's not turning out quite like we thought. And we've got to face reality. So, so you're in terms of if we think about the, the future for energy, it is going to continue to take on those two things. But don't feel like gee, like this isn't solvable because people aren't being practical and real because we will hit those sideboards that put people back to the middle uh, in, in thinking about practical solutions for the future. So one of the things that you, you said reminded me of the best fortune cookie fortune I ever got, which sits on my desk, which is the essential ingredient for a happy life is purpose. And so um, for this audience here, I'm hoping maybe you could tell us a little bit how you think about about the opportunity to contribute into the energy future. So as you laid out in our industry, we used to just be ninjas. Like our job was to be invisible, to provide this amazing miracle of energy and no one ever knew. And then now, of course, everyone takes it completely for granted. But now we have an, a room full of people who will not just be responsible for expanding energy access, ensuring it's affordable, but also decarbonizing it and, and probably in their lifetime seeing a total transformation of the energy system as we know it. What do you think, um, what are things that, that they and we can get excited about? What do you think the changes will be? Where do you see innovation and technology and, and change? Well, first of all, I think, you know, within the pipeline sector more directly, there is so much opportunity to bring new ideas and new technology forward. It, it is fascinating to me sometimes how little we have done with technology within the pipeline industry. So there's a lot of things that, that are very positive. Uh, you're going to hear some, you know, information on inline inspection and smart pigging is kind of on the, the leading edge of technology within the space. But, but overall, we really haven't brought technology uh, very far forward. And I keep looking for people. You might think I sit in my office and think, by God, I'm just going to make sure everybody does things the way I did them. That is not at all. <laughs> that is not at all what any good leader wants. Good leaders want people to be passing them fast with ideas and finding simpler, easier ways to do it. The, the interconnectivity of this generation, just, just remember when I, when I first started in, this was 86, that I got my first bag phone. And I was somebody. <laughs> like I was the man. It weighed forty pounds. Phone. Yes, because I had a I had a bag phone in, so and I could actually. Of course, there wasn't anybody else you could call on a cell phone. So, you, but the interconnectivity that you all have, and the way you all network in terms of ideas between each other is incredibly powerful. And your ability to really bring that to light within uh, our companies and, and say, you know, why in the world do we continue to do 
our businesses. So this is so slow. I remember being in, and this was probably 10, 12 years ago, being out in one of our gathering operations and a guy, so I was riding around with, with two different employees, one that was probably my age back then, but been with the company a long time. And another guy that had been with, was like 25, 26, been with the company a few years. And he said, Mr. Armstrong, this is, this is the younger guy. Look at this. Like I can, or I'm out in the middle of nowhere and I can have a pizza delivered here in 15 minutes <laughs> on my phone. But if I want a part to get a part, that's going to save us $40,000 on this piece of equipment going down, I have to go back and fill out triplicate carbon forms. I have to, you know, the, the process and the bureaucracy I have to go to, to get a part out here is ridiculous. And it really hit me that we have done so, so little within our industry. Now, I know, you know, th things have changed a lot in 10 years and we're all making great progress on managing our, our supply chain in a smart way. But there is so much that you all have to offer by going, guys, this is, this is really old school. This is, there are so many easier ways to do this. And so I would just encourage you, grab a few things. Anne's, Anne's comments today about things that you can do to help bring change. Well, the way you're going to get onto some of those councils, the way you're going to get into those that seat at the, at the strategy table, the way you're going to do that is by showing that you're a leader and you have little, and it can be little. It, it can start with something little. It doesn't have to be world changing to start with, but bringing forward ideas and being convicted and passionate about seeing those ideas adopted. I can tell you, those are the people when I look around, people have been promoted uh, over the last 15 or 20 years. People that were really young when, when they started with the company and I've seen them propel. It's the people that have said, you know, the way we do, the way we analyze our measurement data is really old school. Like there are so many cool ways to do data analytics on this and get rid of all of the, the people that sit around in a room and go through piles and piles of data. Those are the people today, when I look around our company, the people, and, and I can tell you who it was, and it was, it was Melissa McGillan within uh, Williams that brought forward ideas on how we were going to revamp uh, our way of measuring. Those are going to be the leaders of the company. So if you want to, if you want to be at that strategy table, put yourself in a position to show that you can lead. And it starts with having ideas that you're convicted to that, that are not going to make you important. It's not, this isn't about making you important. It's about making the organization better. And when people see that you're focused on making the organization better, it's not a selfish motive on your part. It's how do we make our company better? How do we make our organization? How do we make our industry better? Those are the things that people like to follow. So that's, that's really how to have start with something relatively small, but, but be convicted to it. And don't be scared to pound on the table on making it happen. Like if you, and if you can't bring change in the organization you are, then you have to look around and go, is this really where I want to be? If I can't bring change, am I really going to sit here at a job that I'm just going to be doing what I'm told every day? Like that's not very fulfilling. That's not purposeful. You're not going to have a happy career. So take on the courage right now to take on those tough things and, and show leadership early in your career. 
I love that. And I want to um, introduce our first, both of these things are true because what you're speaking to on some level and, and answering the question at the end that was brought to Anne about what can you do if your, if your management is uh, resistant and now I'm speaking to having the courage. And I would also say that incremental change is change and that um, on some level, our industry has to do two things at the same time. We have to innovate and do our operations better, decarbonizing, becoming more efficient using technology in bright and innovative ways. And your ideas might feel incremental. But at the same time, our industry has the scale, the resources to meaningfully impact energy security and decarbonization in North America and around the world. So we want your ideas in both those areas, debt today <laughs> and in, in the big picture. And just since we scheduled this, this um, event, um, Alan, you and your team did this awesome investor day and you rolled out pretty bold uh, plans in a conventional way, but also in new energy ventures. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, some of those areas that you see uh, Williams leading into a decarbonizing energy future. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, one of the things that that we face as an energy industry. And part of this is because, as I said earlier, we've kind of tried to stay off the radar screen. So we didn't have big PR firms, didn't have communication firm. As a result of that, you know, our reputation is not is not very good in the public's mind. And so I was thankful that, that Ann didn't show what people think of big oil, but um, <laughs> in, in her stats. But the fact is we are really challenged from a reputational perspective. And so, Taking on that issue and us figuring out um, how we make sure that when we roll data out, that it is very credible. But listen, right now, I mean, the first inkling you saw of this was when people started saying in West Texas and the Permian, oh, we're not flaring that much. Oh, we're not, you know, we're not being the problem. And then and then the EDFs of the world started flying satellites over and people started going, ah. Yeah, yeah, well, that was just an operational issue. And so we can't be there. We have to have credible, unassailable data that we can show from the wellhead all the way to the point of consumption. We are going to have to build very comprehensive systems that track the carbon and the emissions that we're making all along the pathway. And and us just thinking that people are going to take our word for it is just foolhardy. And it's all it's going to do is damage our reputation if we don't have unassailable data. So from a wave perspective, one of the projects I'm you know most excited about that we're doing, and it's you know it's a long ways from being from me being able to say, well, I know exactly how we're going to get our money back from that investment. But and it is uh, with Context Labs and Encino. And on one hand, Context Labs has put together the blockchain technology to basically track all the information available on a pathway from the time that gas comes out of the ground to the time it gets delivered all the way onto an, uh, an LNG container or into domestic markets. And that is complicated. You, you think that's simple? It's not like, you all know this, but a lot of the world doesn't understand this. It's not like that molecule just goes point A to point B and, and all you have to do is 
track it from point A to point B. It has so many different paths it can take, There's so many different pieces of equipment, so many different conditions to be considered along the way. And today, you know, a lot of you all probably appreciate this, and, and uh, but I, I the, the SEC disclosure is a good example. A lot of people don't understand the, to say that our emissions reporting today is accurate and sophisticated. It is not. I mean, you all you all know this. A lot of it's just estimates. It's counting flanges. It's taking some sample test data and monitoring every once in a while and saying, poof, that's going to be it from and that. That is not going to cut it long term. And so we that is an area that we're investing in as Williams to be able to take uh, and improve the monitoring side of that with our investment in Encino Labs. And on the other side, investing in the tracking and the blockchain technology to be able to actually put all that information together and say, no, we know we know the path this molecule has been on and we know the emissions that should be accountable towards producing this gas. So it's a big, big undertaking. And it is definitely guessing where the puck's going to go. It's not it's not where it is today. There's not money to be made today by being able to do that perfectly. But I'm very convinced that in the long term, we're going to have to be able to do that. And so that's one of the areas I'm really excited about. We will be right back to the Energy Thinks podcast. But are your company's ESG efforts falling behind the sector? Find out by downloading ESG in 2022, Adam Mateen's latest white paper, to find out which moves ESG leaders in oil and gas are making and what's now standard across the industry. Download ESG in 2022 today at energythinks.com. And now back to the show. Well, and that area is so important. I just came straight to Houston from Stanford, where we were having a gathering, including folks presented from Williams on this initiative, specifically talking about how the industry across the whole value chain is going to reduce um, methane emissions. Now, here's how this pivots into, into global energy, the global energy crisis. The world is begging for more natural gas from climate friendly and energy and politically friendly countries. And of course, the U.S. is the best poised to do this. But no one domestically is going to support the production of more oil and gas in the U.S. if we cannot make a compelling, grounded case that we present that we are going to produce the most climate friendly oil and gas in the world. And it's going to take these kind of efforts because no one's going to believe a damn thing we say. We have to prove it with data and science and third party validation. And I will tell you at this event, and I was really impressed um, with the Williams team that presented there, but also the Cleaner Task Force was there, um, RMI, which is formerly Rocky Mountain Institute. So two environmental NGOs were there, and we are aligned. We are aligned in a shared vision of a decarbonizing energy future where we can can prove that we're producing the most, uh, the cleanest gas in the world, and not just producing it, but getting it, getting it out to market. So such an important piece. And um, this morning... I was so bummed out to hear political commentary about big oil and price gouging and just the stuff that happens when the world's in crisis. I just can't stand it. So, Alan, I want you to offer us another vision of politics. You were invited to the White House um, this fall to lead an effort on cybersecurity. Never more important. We're all hearing right now about the potential for Russian attacks on our energy infrastructure in, in, the, in the U.S. And here you were doing this before, before it was cool to talk about. <laughs> Can you talk about, well, first of all, what's it like to get be invited to the White House to talk about cybersecurity? And then what's this initiative and can we transcend politics? Well, thank, thank you. Too. Well, first of all, 
yeah, I think it's really important to know that we as Williams, when the Biden administration first came into power, we had been knocking on the door saying, hey, let us have a seat at the table to talk about energy policy and the right solutions. We are very earnest in our effort to do it in a very, in, in the very cleanest manner. But we think that we really, really should be thinking about natural gas policy, not just from a climate perspective, but from a geopolitical perspective. And so this was, you know, early on in the process. We were getting nowhere with that with that desire to have a, a you know a good conversation to be constructive and and we went in there on the backs of the work we had done through the National Petroleum Council working with the Department of Energy and even in the in the infrastructure study that we produced as the National Petroleum Council we said we want carbon pricing we need to have carbon pricing to be able to invest in in these things in a market sensitive manner we need carbon pricing so we had actually rolled that out. And even with that, even kind of with that entree and proof that, hey, we're, we're not maybe not on such different pages. There just was no invite there because it was just, well, you're fossil fuels. And so that's not going to work. So that labeling issue, I think, you know, has become a real challenge on the partisan side. But the cybersecurity piece came as an opportunity really right before it actually came before the colonial pipeline situation. And, and and right before, it, but the National Security Council re- recognized that there was a lot of attacks against big natural gas infrastructure, in particular things like uh, our some of our systems. And so they wanted to, but they also realized that we had done a really nice job of defending ourselves. And so they wanted to get the industry engaged on this issue. And so it did. Pro- and and frankly, I thought, well, gosh, like. I have to call my daughters, you know, to figure out technical stuff all the time. So I'm the very worst person from a cybersecurity <laughs> perspective. But the fact is that Williams has taken the security of its systems very seriously. We've invested in that and that can, and we have some great talent and great pros that work on that. And so that kind of got us the invite. So I actually took it on mostly to build a relationship mm-hmm. within the Biden administration. And I would say that that's worked, you know, fairly well. And it's also proven that we can tackle these challenges in an industry to government relationship way that is not labeling each other and in a very constructive way. And I will tell you, I am so proud of how our industry has responded and how well we've worked with the TSA, which is the overseer of cybersecurity. And we've worked with them in a very constructive way to have a path forward. So there's a lot of folks that are really worked up about this, as they should be in D.C., and they've really you know, been banging the alarm for our industry, rightfully so. And so but we've really got to show that we're responsible, just like when it comes to climate change. We've got to show we're serious about this. We're not here to say no regulation. We're here to get the regulation smart, and we're here to, to make sure that, that we protect uh, our country in, in the process of having good, smart regulation. So there's so much I love in what you just said, and so I'm already going off of anything we prepared for, so I'm warning you now. She also um, warned me that she was going to take me on a few times, so I'm waiting yeah, for that. Yeah, here I'm we definitely go. definitely scared about that. <laughs> here we go. I'm just warming him up for your questions, so okay. I hope you're preparing yourself. So one of the things Ann talked about which I love is that um, our industry runs towards crises and we run toward them as civic leaders to help. There's a hurricane.
hurricane, you want you want oil and gas. There's a flood. You've got people with everything from shovels to backhoes helping you. Now, this is interesting because it's cybersecurity and you rose to this opportunity as a civic leader. So now I just want to ask what qualities should this crowd be building? Not like their IT skills, because clearly you don't have those. You have to bring your daughter in. I'm sure you do, because later you can help me figure out how to get that app working on my phone. Um, but what are the qualities of an emerging leader? What do they need to be cultivating in themselves? And I don't know if it's values or purpose or if it's something like courage, but I would just love for you to just make just free form. Okay. Well, I, I do think that courage and passion and conviction to your ideas are probably the most important thing from a leadership perspective because people sense that about people. And, and, but that, that needs to be focused on, again, not on yourself, not on making yourself important, but on making the organization better. And when people see that and they see you taking risk and for the betterment of the organization, they people respect that. And that, I think, you know, is just a very healthy uh, way of taking on leadership. And mm-hmm. and believe me, if you don't like that, if you don't like the conflict that comes with that, if you don't like the effort and hard work that comes with that, then you're not going to like being a leader. So don't go down that path because that that will be there always. But if you're you know, if you really have passion and conviction around that, then that's that's really what it takes from my perspective to really lead at the end of the day. It's not believe me. There are so many people in our company today and that were peers of mine coming up through that were so much smarter than I would ever think about being. But I don't know that I ever saw anybody a whole lot more passionate than I was around trying to make the company great. And that is what people respect in, in a good culture is somebody that's really looking out for the whole organization. So I would just say kind of test yourself on that and decide Am I really willing to kind of take that on, to take on when I want to bring about change? I'm going to have to win people over. And trust me, it is not. Winning people over is not about saying, now let me explain how stupid you are and how smart I am about this topic. That is not how you get things done. And believe me, in an organization with a lot of engineers, I've seen a lot of that, including myself. And so, but, but it really is listening to the other person, listening to what, you know, uh, Ann talked about uh, empathy and the millennials being, you know, being the most empathetic uh, of the generations. And that's a huge skill set when it comes to leading, to listen to what other people's issues are, listen to their objections, try to understand it. Because, by the way, you might actually perfect and improve your idea by thinking about where those points of resistance are going to be. And so I would say that's a, you know, a powerful skill set because it's not about just I'm right and you're wrong. Get out of my way at all. It is about moving the company forward and thinking about where some of those objections might be. And that leads me to a comment I want to talk about on diversity and inclusion, because my passion around diversity and inclusion really starts with inclusion. And it really starts with having an organization that everybody is excited and they want to bring their passion to work every day. They don't feel like there's any encumbrances. They don't feel like there's somebody looking at them differently or thinking they're not smart enough, that it is a, a, an organization where everybody can bring their very best every day. And by the way, that's, that is totally selfish. 
from an organizational perspective. So that is not like, that's not doing it because, well, you know, we're going to get a bad mark if we don't do it. It is really about making a great company. It's about having an, uh, an organization where people feel like every day they can bring their passion and they want to because they like and they're, they're respected uh, by the people around them. So it's not that complicated from my perspective. It is, you know, getting getting through all the opinions and answering a lot of the difficult questions is challenging. But the concept of why why would you want diversity and inclusion in an organization is not that complicated to me. And it's not some, you know, it's not some moral objective from my perspective. It is very selfish to the corporation by having a place where everybody feels like that they can bring their passion and their energy. It also means that we have to be careful about um, making rules that are based on somebody's race and gender at the same time, because that can't be a path forward. The, the path forward can't be we're going to count heads on this or there. It is about making an area where an organization that everybody wants to bring their very best and has a passion to do that. So so, I, you know, it's a that's a challenging issue within Williams. We have a council and one of the primary reasons that we invite people onto the council. One of the reasons and one of the things I like to see people learn is that, you know, just making up rules that that we're going to do this and we're going to do that and it doesn't really bring everybody along is not is not going to be a constructive executive thing. So I get questions from people all the time. Well, my God, why don't, if you're passionate about, why don't we just do this? Mm-hmm. And and but letting people see from an executive perspective, your job here isn't to just represent one group or one simple idea. Your job is to bring the whole organization together. And that's what executive leadership is about. And letting people see the challenges up close and personal of that without just thinking, you know, there's not a, there's not an easy button sitting on my desk. No. And with and this, this generation is the most diverse generation yet. And in fact, it will be your participation in building an inclusive culture and recruiting the best and brightest and working differently in our communities in a way that engages in meaningful ways that addresses environmental justice and racial equity. These are things that your generation is front lines on and can be a huge part of helping our companies do better in authentic ways that also speak to your passions. Um, Okay, I'm I'm just warning you in a second, I'm going to ask you for your questions, but I'm going to give Alan one more question because um, Anne laid out and you identified as an industry, one of the mistakes that we have made is we would go into communities to explain. We're going to explain why you need energy. We're going to explain why you want this pipeline. And what we've learned is that we have to build rapport and trust before education can work. And Alan, you're one of um, the founding leaders of Natural Allies, who is um, and our our great friend, Susan Waller, who is just a fearless leader and a passionate industry advocate. Um, You are doing some really important work to understand how to make those connections, how to build that trust how to speak to people in their own language, on their terms, in their, where they consume media. Um, what have you learned so far from that effort? Well, it's fascinating. So we went into that and we kind of kind of went hands off to the PR group. So we picked two PR firms, one that was very associated with the Republican Party and one that had been more associated with the Democratic Party. And so we brought those two together and said, you all work it out. And um, and, you know, the good thing, the good thing is that those those groups are really good at being able to do that. And at the end of the day, we just ask them to go find out what message resonates 
with people and which groups of people it resonates with. And so they kind of went and targeted what they call influencers within the moderate Democrats, within minorities, within various sectors and demographics. And they went and played messages and they figured out kind of what resonated and what didn't resonate with people. The fascinating thing was how moved people were of the people that heard these messages. And these were in pilot areas like within the Beltway in D.C., in a small part of eastern Pennsylvania, and in Albany, New York. And so areas that are not oil and gas areas at all. And the messages, though, were around the ability for natural gas to really uh, bring forward affordable energy and as well be an important partner to renewable energy as well. And those messages resonated extremely well and moved people a long way within those groups. Now, there's, you know, there's the hard left, kind of the AOC version of that, that you could spend a lot of money and never move. But the moderate Democrat uh, and within the minority heavily moved by these messages. And so I was re- I've been really encouraged by that um, in terms of knowing that that window hasn't closed in terms of us putting a more positive image around the benefits of natural gas in addressing climate change. That's great. Okay. So here's how this usually works. We have 15 minutes for Q&A and you're working up your courage. And then when I say time for one more question, 15 of you are going to put up your hands. (laughs) So how about if you're even like barely contemplating putting up a question, could you just put your hands up now so we know how long we should take to answer? Really? Come on. If you're even thinking about it, like you're just toying (laughs) with the idea. Yeah, like really high. Put up now. Put two hands up. Okay, great. Okay, so we have like fifty questions. No, we have like fifteen questions. So I want to get that done. So go ahead and grab the first person who really looked like they meant it. <laughs> the rest of you screw up your courage. Here we go. This is a big chance to get to hear what Alan has to say. Uh, first of all, thank you. Uh, really enjoyed your discussion back and forth. I, I think Ellie, I want to tell us who you are because you uh, might be oh, famous on the podcast. Uh, my name's Elliot Matthews. I'm with BGC Engineering based out of Vancouver, British Columbia, environmental consulting, uh, geological engineering, environmental consulting firm. Beautiful place, too. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, I, I'd like to frame this question in terms, and you've touched on it on several occasions throughout your discussion, but in terms of kind of a international marketing uh, context, similar to like coffee or perhaps diamonds, uh, there's been a trend towards, you know, fair trade. Is there some kind of a marketing vehicle that is currently out there or up and coming that you know of that would help uh, pipeline companies in the West promote themselves domestic production and kind of set themselves aside from international companies? So I'll take a big picture and then you could talk about how your recent carbon tracking sets into this. So uh, North American companies understand that they need to be able to credibly brand their natural gas and ultimately oil um, and discern, have it be discerned from oil and gas from not, not friendly countries. Um, and then further, we need to be able to demonstrate comparatively the, the carbon footprint of those resources. So there are a number of um, 
efforts underway. Uh, Chenier is now tracking the carbon content. Um, and and the meeting I was at at Stanford is to create the, a consistent way of measuring methane intensity among the entire value chain so that we can do that. Now, here's the, the caveat I'll give about that. If, if this is a marketing strategy, it's going to fail. If this is a civic leadership strategy, then we are solving the world's problems. And that's how we have to think about it. It has to be real, it has to be credible, and we have to be committed to the long term to being part of creating leadership and building energy security, reducing poverty around the world, and we have to mean it. And any marketing campaign is going to fail because people don't believe us anyway. So we have to seize the mantle of leadership, and that's why I love getting to sit up here with Alan. Well, I don't really have that much to add to that. I do think that Tish is probably one of the very best people around to answer that question, frankly, because she does come at it from a you know practical perspective, and she's seen the messaging fail, and she's seen it be successful. So I think I think that's um, spot on. But I do think that we will get there by having unassailable, credible information that is genuine, as Tish points out, that is genuine in in its purpose for actually delivering low carbon gas and people really sensing uh, that we're, we're serious and genuine about that. Next question. So let's line up our next two. So we have one here and then one here. So you go next. Good morning. My name is Patrick Steichen. I work for Phillips 66 out of our Bartlesville, Oklahoma office. Thanks for the thumbs up. <laughs> um, but as companies uh, try to decarbonize and work towards their carbon goals, uh, you'd think at first they'd go after some low-hanging fruit, maybe some items that uh, will save the company money and will help decarbonize. But as we work to move past those and maybe into some areas that might not help the company's bottom line, how would you look at rationalizing that uh, to shareholders or other people who will be looking at you to return value uh, to their investments? Yeah, that is a fantastic question. And, you know, if you think about the amount of subsidy, for instance, right now that we put on a electric vehicle and you think about how little impact that actually has, especially when on the margin that electricity is being produced by fossil fuels, that is not making a big difference. And so, you know, we, we've got to start finding a measure of efficiency in the dollars that we invest for emissions reduction. And that one's actually kind of simple because that's about, it winds up being about $1,500 a ton is what that investment is that we're making uh, in, in that. There's so many things we can do in our industry at $1,500 a ton. There's a lot of things we can do at $80 a ton. And so starting to really put a kind of a price tag associated with carbon reduction and bring in some intelligence to that, I think is going to be necessary. I'm not sure it's going to win over the public, but I think when it comes to energy policy, I think that's going to be a really critical issue to start putting the facts and figures. And hopefully, and, and I think this is a really important piece of this, Finding groups that are earnest on the environmental opposition side, that are really earnest in doing this well and really tackling this from a science perspective, having them be the ones that say, whoa, 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 that, that's, that's such a low, that is, that is such a low opportunity issue we're pursuing, but it's politically popular. In fact, I was on a business roundtable call here recently and somebody was saying, well, we should do this because it's politically popular. And I'm like, wait a second, we're, we're the business roundtable. We're supposed to be focused on business and the real honest solutions. We're not supposed to be parroting the political solutions. And so I do think, though, that we've got to find good messengers for that. 
And and you're right, though, the 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 amount of carbon reduction that the energy business can bring just by focusing on improving our operations is enormous. And and we've got to continue to do that. But it's not it's not what everybody thinks. You know, I saw a, a number. This is real. This was really alarming to me here two weeks ago. I saw a number that showed that we had installed across the world. We had installed 253 gigawatts of renewable power in 2020. That's a lot. That's a lot of new power. And that is way above anything we'd ever installed before on an annual basis. The actual produced power out of that that same renewable resource, and this was hydro, uh, wind, and solar were the three sources. And out of that, we produced about 51 gigawatts is all the power that got produced out of that. And by the way, our energy demand on that on that same basis, our energy demand grew by 153 gigawatts. So we're not even, we're, we're basically at a third with all of that install capacity, we're only at a third. Now, does that mean we shouldn't continue to pursue to do that? No, but it says we have got to go a lot further on decarbonizing uh, the fossil fuel industry because we're not going to get there we're not going to be able to keep up with demand growth right now with the technology we have in, in renewables. So we've, we've got to take on some of these important things. So great question. And, and, um, and I actually went finished high school in Bartlesville. So <laughs> glad to have you. We have a question over here. Howdy, my name is Manuel Valencia, working with ADV Integrity based in Waller, Texas. And so you mentioned that the pipeline industry has done very little in technological innovation. And so my question revolves around, is this lack of technological innovation and integration a problem of mindset or the way that we're set up by the regulations that are made revolving pipelines? Or what, what would you say those reasons are and how can we be any different? Yeah, I think it's a little bit, certainly the regulatory framework has not been one that's really encouraged a lot of new technology. So it hasn't really been an area where you've been encouraged to invest in that and in reducing costs the way you would have in some other industries. So I think that over the long haul has developed that. And it's been kind of a, you know, an industry set up around rate regulation. Now, the unregulated side of the business, um, you know, has has employed quite a bit of new technology, but but really even there, and I would say it's probably because those two industries are operated, you know, hand in hand, and so I think it kind of comes from that regulated mindset that has restricted uh, some of that use. But and I don't intend, I don't mean to say, gee, we haven't done anything, but I think if if you look at it relative to t- take the whole oil and gas industry and think about how far the technology has come on drilling. I mean, it is remarkable the technology that gets employed onshore shell resource, what get, what's happens there, um, what happens in the deep water Gulf of Mexico is some of the most fascinating technology, I think, anywhere in the world on scale industrial facilities. And so, and that business has lowered their cost of goods produced dramatically, even with regulations in their way, they have dramatically reduced the cost of goods. So the cost of the service that we provide in the pipeline industry has taken up every bit of that advantage because the cost of developing the infrastructure has been going up dramatically. And so, so that that's why I think there's real opportunity to bring, uh, you know, technology. And I really, I challenge this group right here, you know, be pushing on uh, that topic because there's a lot that you all can bring to the table. Let me ask a follow-up question to that question, uh, which is uh, how has Williams New Energy Ventures and your look at hydrogen, 
CCS, renewable natural gas. How's that been received within the company and within the company culture to, to riff off this idea of is, is Williams company culture ready for, for the uh, new energy ventures or, or do you have to really make a, a case to make that? Uh, yeah, no, effort? I mean, the, the really cool thing about Williams is we were we were the first company to, you know, we, we had at one point we had the second largest fiber optic network uh, in the nation because we had pipelines. The pipelines, some of them weren't fit for service anymore. And we dove right into the fiber optics business, had no idea what we were doing. We kind of figured it out along the way. But but we developed a huge network and developed a lot of great technology actually within the fiber optic, wholesale fiber optic industry. And so it's not that's not beyond our culture to go, you know, tackle something like that. Uh, but it, but it is it, the one thing that I've kind of taken note of is that the amount of energy and passion that I've seen coming from our younger generation just get unleashed on this issue and people being super excited about working on some of that. And I think that is like that, you know, that's hard to pay for, honestly, that's, that is that in itself is very, very valuable to have a workforce that's excited about what they're doing and passionate and feeling like they have a lot of important purpose. So so to me, there's you know, there's tons of value just in that. Well, given that we're at time, I think that's the note we should end on. So I want to thank this audience for being the leaders of our industry, for putting yourself out there to be at this event. I want to thank you for leading us into the energy future, for solving all the problems that we've created for you uh, by way of opportunity. And will you please join me in thanking um, the wonderful leader, Alan Armstrong. I would just close on just saying, and we're very, very fortunate to have somebody like Tisha that is um, a very wise communicator in our space and is making a big difference. And I'm very appreciative of your efforts. So thank, thank you. you. Yeah. That's our episode for today. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alan Armstrong at the Young Pipeline Professionals USA Symposium. It was so much fun and I look forward to the opportunity to engage with so many spectacular millennial and Gen Z emerging leaders in the industry again. Um, you know, it was a game changing insight for me. It was do not put yourself on an agenda after Ann Carto. That's what I learned from that situation. Although I must say, I loved every minute of it. I'd like to know what you found interesting and insightful. So take a moment and let us know at energythinks.com. If you're enjoying what you hear, please take a moment and rate us. I would like to thank Adon Rubio, Lindsay Slaughter, and Michael Tanner for making the Energy Thinks podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.